This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. I'm here with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott at our uh, Barcelona Cognition Brain and Technology Summer School of 2018 where uh, our guest uh, Bjorn Merker, welcome to the podcast Bjorn, um, has given a tutorial on, on the different systems of the brain and how they're organized, uh, especially from, a, from, a, from an anatomical perspective, right? And then also what possibly the functional consequences of this organization could be. So Bjorn, how many systems would you distinguish in the mammalian brain? How many subsystems would you would you consider as being relevant? Well, what I did in the tutorial was try to first of all raise some problems about what we mean by systems and how to define them. Because anatomically I made one example, for example, take midbrain and diencephalon in our anatomical nomenclature, we divide them up into two clear compartments, diencephalon and uh, midbrain. But if you look, I, I, I showed horizontal sections, and it's an absolutely uniform rhesium, you know, gray matter uh, with various nuclei, and you can't see any, uh, any distinction between them. And then you look at embryology and, uh, and uh, molecular markers for developmental uh, processes, and you see that midbrain and diencephalon in, in its origin is one unit, and it's the unit that receives terminals from the optic tract, the midbrain does, and so I call it the optic brain, and uh, so that was to try to make a little problem out of how we define a system. So, uh, and uh, anatomically, when I, when I was looking at, at brains myself, uh, you took the posterior commissure was the dividing line. Behind that is midbrain and in front of that, but functionally and in terms of circuitry, you can't see, see, a, see a border between them. So I, I tried to make a little problem out of defining systems, and then I said, well, we can use uh, approach from, for example, uh, systems theory or cellular analysis of cell function. There you have clear division of labor between the different organelles. They're each doing a specific thing. The mitochondria are doing metabolism, and uh, uh, endoplasm reticulum is doing, uh, is doing uh, DNA. Uh, work and uh, Golgi apparatus and so on. Each has its function and they all work together and when they stop working together the cell is dead and the system is gone. So uh, so if you look at this uh, in terms of the division of labor, uh, what would you like the parts, the system parts of the total system, what would you like them to do? Well, you would like them to have rather clear-cut generic functions. and. If you think about that, you would also ex expect that if, a si if there is a system and it's anatomically visible, uh, it would have a pretty redundant structure. And the classical example, of course, is cerebellum, which has this crystalline structure redundant throughout. And you know, you would be ha have to be pretty much out of your mind not to think that wherever in the cerebellum you are, that circuit is doing something similar across the whole cerebellum. So. A generic function and uh, uh, reflected in, in a, in a, a clear-cut clear structure. Uh, cortex, uh, neocortex is similarly very uniform in its structure. Uh, the basal ganglia is also, but they are all very different in their structures. 
So uh, by that kind of reasoning, by, by showing lots of pictures of, of these things, you can start saying, well, maybe there is a reason to divide this thing up into uh, uh, the, the higher functions, into systems, uh, division of labor between basal ganglia, cerebellum, and neocortex, or actually cortex as a whole, because the, the uh, hippocampus, for example, is simply the top of the hierarchy, in a sense, of, of the cortical hierarchy. Uh, then as you go down, midbrain, you have this clear-cut, uh, very well-defined, uh, which I wouldn't hesitate to call the system, which is the colliculus. Uh, you have the extensions of the basal ganglia down into the midbrain. And then, of course, you have the brainstem, which is just this massive collection of very, very specific circuitry having to do with all the basic functions, from respiration and locomotion to, uh, to uh, vocal control and so on. So once you, once you up, up in the higher reaches, uh, I find it easy to sort of uh, give, give at least a conjectural uh, notion of system. Uh, how, how many systems do you divide the brainstem up into? That's your free choice. I mm -hmm. mean, so I would hesitate to give us an explicit number, but I would say that there are very clearly defined systems, and the, the, the challenge will be uh, two, two challenges. Uh, what is their generic function, each one of them? Can we define a global function for each one of them that is reflected in the circuitry? And secondly, how do they work together? But, the, but we could also, as a heuristic, go to ethology or we could yeah. go to psychology and say, well, systems are defined around motivation, uh, attention, perception, yeah. memory, right? Would you, would yeah. you find it a helpful heuristic to test? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it would come in. Uh, the, uh, for the brainstem, that there you would obviously have, have to deal with motivational systems uh, built in at a very, very basic level, uh, survival-related on all kinds of dimensions, and uh, psychology, attention, volition, and uh, so on, abstraction, uh, cognition, uh, surely. Uh, and then now the question comes, how do you interface them with this other way, this division of labor notion? Mm -hmm. And much of what psychology looks at, of course, is consciously accessible information. You can ask people in psychophysical experiments or you can do behavioral experiments and, uh, uh, and uh, you extract some kind of uh, functional conception from that. And so you get a class of attentional mechanisms play across the different modalities. So that's probably uh, some system that is doing that and so on. Uh, now it would play it could conceivably cut across several of these divisional labor-defined systems. Uh, attention. Uh, there is a theory of attention that actually involves the basal ganglia, isn't there? Uh, somebody wrote something about the basal ganglia and attention. Now, normally we don't think of it that way, but where did I see that? Anyway, uh, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So th this sort of overall systems decomposition can we find some, uh, you know, general principles that are even above the level of modules here or, or subsystems? Um, for example, sort of the Jacksonian principle of layered control. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Would you agree that? Because, because there you have redundancy or, or uh, maybe not redundancy, but you have similar functionality at different levels of the brain, but very, differences. Very about much appealing. Uh, the, uh, I saw one example this afternoon with uh, Giovanni's presentation where in the idling conditioning with cerebellar involvement, uh, the, uh, 
the eye blink reflex, which is the one without the cue, and just an aircraft goes to your eye, that one keeps working. That one keeps working, and what you get is you move the beginning of that up. But so, so when you saw the detailed videos of the, of the eye closing during eye blink conditioning, you, when, when the animal was conditioned, you see this slow thing, which is the anticipatory blinking, and then a real squeezing of the eye, which is the old reflex. So here they are both two levels, two Jacksonian levels, if you please, both working at the same time in parallel. In that case, there is no reason whatsoever to eliminate the lower one. Let it run. And that, to me, by the way, brings up the, the, the very appealing notion that sometimes we think of the systems working together that you have to switch back and forth between them. But the default, the default uh, procedure ought to be that every system does its generic thing all the time, in parallel, and uh, uh, when when the when it gets when no other system is sending it input, it idles, yeah. and when it gets something significant, it does its thing on it and sends it back wherever it's gonna send it. So that means that they are running in parallel all the time, and that there would then be some behavioral situations in which you would have to turn off actively. The low, a lower level because it interferes with something, but that, those would be special cases. The default would be multi-level, parallel, running, each one doing their own thing. Uh, and like there is the old notion that, that visual function moves from the colliculus up to cortex. No, a new layer is added with completely new capacities, object, object uh, vision, and the colliculus keeps doing its old orienting thing and actually, some some uh, some uh, uh, some uh, some salient things yeah. and so on. So let let it do its thing. Why <laughs> it's perfectly home for millions of years of evolution. Let it do its thing and just add new things. And then the new things have to be tied into the old ones, and they are usually tied in by some kind of fiber projection. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. The levels thing. I have no problem with. But but now but now we have a bit of a mess, right? Because we started in anatomy, and it looks like, uh, although you already said, be careful with drawing borders, because it's not so obvious, mm -hmm. but we could think about, okay, but there are like structural divisions, right? I have, I have a brain, brain's my midbrain, forebrain. Mm -hmm. But now, if we take this Jacksonian view together with this more ecological, psychological, functional perspective, it starts to look like at each of these structural systems, all these function elements are actually represented in some form. But as I move forward along the neuraxis, it is starting to become more dependent on, let's say, on memory. It starts to become more dependent on learning properties of the control of these different psychological functions. Right? So how, how, how should we now square that circle? How do we get the structure and the function aligned. Because the standard heuristic was always, well, function follows structure. If you understand the structure, you have, you have your head around the function. Yeah. But then maybe it's not that straightforward. In other words, your question is, at each of these levels, even at the most primitive, is there an instantiation at that level of each of the fundamental things? And then you replicate them, but they get more and more sophisticated and more and more dependent on, on, on advanced kind of operations. And naturally, uh, in a lamprey, uh, you know, you have, uh, yeah, but yeah, 
that's maybe we don't have to go that far because what Grillner is showing is that the lamprey in this you know compared to our brain or, or a, a mouse brain is quite primitive but it has a basal ganglia and it's divided up pretty much it sends its avenular for, for avoidance uh, projection and so on and when he takes a, a lamprey and uh, uh, and uh, lesions the basal ganglia they get tardive dyskinesia you know <laughs> they, they suck onto the rocks and they won't let go <laughs> like a Parkinson patient who can't get going now they get stuck in uh, so so uh, so even at so even a lamprey has, of course, a telencephalon. So, so there is, so there is never, there is presumably never a stage at which only a brainstem works by itself. There is all the, the brainstem itself is a, a, a bit hierarchical, and I think the big Except idea perhaps is, a, a developmental stage. Yeah, um, something like the Monodelphus domestica, uh, a possum, where mm. the um, the infants are, are, are born extremely uh, juvenile, essentially just a brainstem animal. Uh -huh. uh, and what they can do at that age is just cling to the mother. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and find uh, mm -hmm. the milk and, and suckle. Yeah. Um, and they would be very different and, from and the guinea born, pig. I think they're born around two weeks yeah. after gestation. Uh -huh. And uh, you can watch the uh, yeah, uh, yeah, other yeah. parts of the brain begin to. Yeah. And I think you can probably see some similar things in in rats in development. I mean, uh -huh. you can. Uh, there is a a mouse, a mutant mouse, where um, there's a, uh, a, a a gene which controls dopamine, mm -hmm. um, and uh, if this if this this gene is absent, then uh, the dopamine cells don't develop properly. And those mice are fine when they're first born, but by, by two weeks, they're magnetic. So the dopamine system and the basal ganglia, presumably, which, you know, which has a veto on any kind of voluntary movement. If once that comes in, if there's no dopamine, it won't work. It won't Prior to that, so they, will be, they, they can will generate be behavior. Have deficits yeah. at that stage, but not early. Yeah. Uh, which means that, in a sense, that system comes in, comes in a bit late. Yeah, and, so the may, first, maybe yeah. in a guinea pig, uh, which which is born and runs around uh, with incredible competence, because I was said to watch uh, a guinea guinea pig birth. Yeah, yeah. The woman was away, and I had them in a cage, and I didn't realize that the newborns could get through the meshes of the cage <laughs> within within one hour of, of of within one hour of birth. They were they were running around the place and hiding in places, and I had to yeah. chase them down. And it was just as bad as, as chasing a, a, a full-grown rat. So yeah. so they would be very competent. So there may be there may be de developmental schedules that kick these things in for yeah, precocity yeah. and versus uh, altrici altriciality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. interesting. And it's interesting in humans that uh, we are precocial in terms of our sensory development, born with our eyes open. Yeah. But our motor system, so it's really, really treasure. What is interesting in your mouse example, Tony, and maybe that's a riddle also during your soul, <clears throat> if you if you sort of perturb the developmental trajectory, you get severe deficits. Correct? But if you would take an adult animal and you would you would lesion the forebrain, then often the 
from the outside, they're pretty much functional, right? If they live in a cage, they can take care of themselves, they can take care of their young, right? So, so it's interesting to see that if you, if you disrupt the developmental pathway, the system apparently is really going towards some attractor that it cannot reach and it collapses, it's pathological, dies, while it wasn't it reached that developmental stage and then you just remove it discreetly, it yeah. can still fall back on these, these earlier layers in this architecture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, so so why would this 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 bootstrap system be so 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 sensitive to perturbation as the adult system is actually very robust to to massive lesions? How would you explain that? Well, I have thought sometimes about the possibility that there are certain structures whose essential function is to educate the system early on, and once they have done their work, the deficits will be less. And that's exact, uh, mm -hmm. approximately rephrasing what you're saying. Uh, now, what I have thought about whether the cerebellum is like that—that that it's real, real—that its real use is, is very early. Of course, later on, we know that you have to recalibrate your VOR when you're when you get uh, when your eyeballs grow and, and and so on. So there are always adjustments that are needed for fine tuning uh, during during uh, during adult. So, so it has a function then also, but maybe the real, the real, uh, the real, it's real work is being done early. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so, so we haven't really solved the problem yet, right? Because we have, we have a structure, a brain structure, there's heterogeneity, it's not all uniform, mm -hmm. but we cannot really draw borders very clearly necessarily, right? It's not clearly modular. But we cannot necessarily map it in some clean way to the to different functions we might want to see either. And the possibility might be that all functions exist at multiple stages yeah. of the yeah. system. But still, when we when we progress along the neuraxis and we go to the telencephalon, the forebrain, there are distinct features that emerge. Would it be fair to say that actually the key thing that's happening is just we're building more advanced memory systems. As we move forward, we build more advanced memory systems. And we have to add features to just control these memory systems. Would that be enough? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I, I said in my tutorial that as soon as you see a structure in the brain that has big volume with millions and millions and maybe billions of neurons, you should think learning structure, memory structure, something that stores. Because I have this heretical view that there is in, in, in every learning system, there is this, 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 uh, this uh, trade-off between stability and plasticity. Okay. Now, <clears throat> so if you make this, if you make the, the synaptic weight changes very rigid, you're gonna you're gonna not be able to use those for anything else. Well, that that has in neural network uh, neural network uh, context that has been solved by adding new units to the network and. Uh, my, my alternative to that is you start out with a huge information storage capacity and you use it up sequentially as you, as you learn. So there, there will be sort, sort, sort of a, some kind of a learning front going through it, using up the tissue. It would be equivalent to the ovaries stocked with all the eggs a woman is going to produce in her entire lifetime and they're successively uh, released. Uh, and here you would start with your full learning capacity and use it up. So it would sort of burn up as you, as you learn. 
and uh, as you commit syn synapse, more and more synapses in various ways to specific specific content uh, and therefore uh, when you see so I so, so I have a chapter in that uh, in in my 2004 paper in cortex uh, a long introduction about the volumetrics of information storage and the best evidence is in bird vocal learning where you have this very very clean correlation between the size of these nuclei and the learning capacity, the complexity of the song that they will acquire. And this goes within species for individuals with different capacities have different size and it goes across species. Species with very complex repertoires have big nuclei and a big, big system and the other ones have smaller. So if you extend that to, to all learning, you would expect, so if you, if you extend that to all learning, you would say, looking at the brain just like that, you would say, where are the learning structures? Cerebellum, basal ganglia, neocortex. Those are the three voluminous big chunks. And the nice thing in evolution is that they go hand in hand. They are sharply, they, the regression of, of volume between cerebellum, neocortex, and uh, basal ganglia raise a sharp correlation. A bigger cortex requires bigger basal ganglia, bigger cerebellum. But the colliculus stays pretty much the same, you know. So, so if you assume that they are storing information continually, through a lifetime, and for everything that you have to adjust to, and using up their storage capacity, they have to start out big and uh, sequentially use it up. But in the striates, it didn't include hippocampus, or is that? No, it's 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 on the top. I include that with the with the neocortex, with okay, the cortex, not neocortex, but with cortex. Mm -hmm. I, in in my tutorial yesterday, I just said cortex generally, and I simply put the hippocampus on top at the top of the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. What did you? Uh, have an alternative learning system in the campus from the rest of cortex. Yeah, it's specialized. Yeah. One of the reasons is it's it's at the top of the hierarchy, uh, uh, and it, it actually it actually converts. It's very very elegant. It converts the supragranularly supragranularly dominated feed forward path to the infragranularly dominated feedback path. So from enterorhinal up into the hippocampus. You get uh, you get the feed forward path, and it comes back in the deep path, in the in the in the feedback path. So there's this nice hinge, but of course the hippocampus preceded neocortex by millions of years, by a long evolutionary history. So it had a separate function long before it became the hinge of the cortical countercurrent. Which I are you, are you sure about that? I mean, I think. Uh, oh, what what are you saying about the evolution of hippocampus? That it it preceded. They're, they're only mammals have neocortex, and all, uh, a lot of a lot of vertebrates have it, it, the medial the medial pallium is sort of hippocampal yeah. analog. Uh, it, it's it's the analog of the hippocampus. It, it grows big only with neocortex, because it serves it in very intimate ways. But uh, but there is there is hippocampus and an analog of amygdala. Uh, yeah. In 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 pre prior to mammals, well, there is a, a sort of three layer sort of it's cortex a three layer in, cor in yeah. reptiles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the yeah. hippocampus is more sort of, I guess, reptilian with other bits yeah. of the yeah. cortex. So it's it's three uh, yeah. cortex starts starts out three layer, and uh, then you get this mammalian invention of five layered cortex, which birds don't have, though their forebrain expands vastly. Uh, so, uh, and they all have a hippocampus. Uh, in fact, hippocampus is one of the very good examples 
in uh, in birds, uh, not only vocal learning, but uh, these these food uh, food caching uh, jays and scrub jays and stuff. Yeah. Some of them up in Siberia, they've studied them. They 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 hide seeds in tens of thousands of different places. One animal, tens of thousands of places. They remember. They know where they are. And the ones who hide, the, the, there are different species. The ones that hide in fewer places have smaller hippocampus. The ones that hide in more thousands and thousands of places have bigger hippocampus. Right. Very nice <laughs> volumetrics. Otherwise, the animals are pretty similar. The, the <laughs> but then there's something interesting about that, Bjorn, also relative to, to the architecture of, of the neocortex, right? because you indeed see then the hippocampal hinge. This is where feed forward switches back to feedback. Mm -hmm there's another pathway like that which runs over frontal cortex which is receiving more attention in some sense yeah. right you say okay i map forward to frontal cortex and then the feedback projections yeah. come back as well yeah. so now i have two orthogonal if you want hinges yeah, in some sense so are, so how should i think about they, that they are in in mesh if we look at the if you look at the connectivity instead of where they are physically and you look back at, at Malcolm Young's beautiful graph theory uh, plot from the macaque, uh, Cocomac, in 1995, you, uh, he, he, he shows there is this beautiful ventral, uh, no, this beautiful uh, visual uh, part of the graph, uh, one big thing hanging out to the left, there is the somatosensory in the middle and the auditory coming off on the right, and then there is the gustatory, and they all converge in what he calls the frontal limbic, uh, the frontal limbic camp. What, and when you look at this, and when you look at the cortical areas, they are completely enmeshed with, with reciprocal connections. The hippocampus sits in the middle of the frontal things like a spider in a web. When I saw that, I said, now I understand finally that they are all the highest level of the system. So that hinge, is a broader hinge than hippocampus. It's enmeshed, and, and when you, simply looking at this graph, you see the densest number of connections are up there. They're all crowded together. Limbic, frontal, and hippocampal is all meshed together, and then this, the, the, the modality-specific streams, the hierarchies, are, are hanging off it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the head of the system, and they are, they are, the hippocampus is connectively very close to frontal area much more distant to visual, for example, than frontal. So it's, 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 it's the next no neighbor to those guys. So right. if you just collapse, if you just uh, shrink the fiber lengths, uh, so sometimes the, the, the physical positioning of, a, of an area can be very deceptive. Here you have at the tip of the temporal, tip middle, middle of the temporal lobe is one of them, and the other one is in frontal cortex, and they are connectively just like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other deceptive one is the frontal eye fields. Frontal eye fields is placed frontally, but connectively in the Young diagram, it's it's in the visual system. It's it's much farther back. It's it's uh, because his connections, of course, are like rubber bands. So they pull and push till they settle to an equilibrium in his, his in his modeling of this. So there you see that really frontal eye fields is high in the visual dorsal stream. Right, but now more recently, there was another proposal by David van Essen and Henry Kennedy, uh, where they spoke of this sort of bow tie structure, yeah. right, in corporate yeah. architecture. Yeah. It means there is a core at mm -hmm. the center of the bow tie that is very densely interconnected, mm -hmm. and then there are these two wings of the bow tie mm -hmm. that are feeding into it, 
from the periphery or that receive inputs from it, yeah. right? And that yeah. would give you the bow tie structure. Yeah. Yeah. Is that in your mind still compatible with, with the, the older Malcolm Young yeah. picture or is yeah. there any change? Did anything change in that picture? What has changed is that at the time of Malcolm Young, they, uh, uh, they interpreted it as a small world system. And it was by the evidence they had then. What has happened since, which was updated in this Vanessa, and I love that paper, I mean, it's a tremendous synthesis they had done there. Uh, what the, they, they found so many more connections that hadn't been reported back then. And when you add those connections, it's, it's, it's more connected than a small world network should be. And that's how they got the bow tie structure. And it, it doesn't conflict with the old view. It's simply another version of having an, an efficient network. And it's to have, have this sort of super hub in the middle and having uh, uh, sensory things feed into it and things where it projects coming out. But if you look at their, their diagram, uh, their, their sort of uh, uh, conceptual sketch of the bow tie, you see one double huge arrow going front the, the feed forward and the feedback is intact that right. whole and that's the thing that's essential about about the malcolm young and all the old versions of, of this is that feed forward and feedback are streaming against each other all the time that's mm -hmm. sort of the, the basic right. and, and but now what you also did yesterday which i found very interesting uh, so so we have now this outline of of, of the anatomy we have a feeling maybe for, for, for how this mapping to function, but you went a step further by really formulating, at least as a hypothesis, distinct functions of them, sort of major subdivisions mm -hmm. of the architecture. Right? Yeah. So could you could you step us through those? And yeah, I only I only I only uh, did my guesswork on because it is as far as I can tell. Uh, they, they, there is no consensus on, on what these things do in the sense of, of how to describe them at, at the very abstract generic functional level. Uh, for neocortex, my, my guess is that it's doing veridical source reconstruction across all afferents. And if you remember, things like, like the stimulus system has a cortical representation. Not everything is up there. So it, it, wants to make, it wants to make sure it has access, rather direct access, to all the, the, basic, the basic sensory systems, including the stimulus, which is quite spectacular, actually. So uh, what do I mean by veridical source reconstruction across all afferents? Its task is to tell us, in a sense, what reality is. And to do that, it needs help from basal ganglia, uh, mostly in terms of how to deal with the world, and from the cerebellum in terms of maybe decorrelation, maybe something else, but uh, there are these very strong anatomical connections from cortex into cerebellum, from cerebellum back, same thing with basal ganglia. Uh, so, and of course, basal ganglia is serving much more than motor cortex, it's serving vast areas of, of the cortical mantle are projecting into the basal ganglia, and then they get down through the funnel and shipped back through the uh, thalamus up to cortex. Uh, so division of labor, source reconstruction means, means because, because 
sensory afferents is not only noisy, but loaded with so much ambiguity in terms of ill-posed and inverse problems. In vision, for example, there's a whole catalog. I mean, I mean, computer vision has been a catalog of working through all the inverse problems that you have to solve to make sense of what's on the retina. Okay, on the retina, if, if you have a circle on the retina, it could be an ellipse at the tilt, it could be a close ellipse at the tilt, or a, a small circle close to you, or a big circle far away from you. It could be any number of things. It could be an infinity of stimuli to generate the same retinal image. So how do you tell? Well, in a, in a monocular view, you can't tell. Uh, you need some additional cues. So you, you, you open two eyes, or you move your head, and suddenly you see, well, it can't be far away because parallax is little. and uh, 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 parallax is, is much, there's lots of parallax when I move my head, so it must be close, and so you disambiguate. Uh, so, and then you take the help of other systems, uh, you might, if you're really unsure, you might uh, try to uh, touch the thing and see what, what, what's actually there, uh, not, not as an adult, but uh, early in development. Um, so, so it has to reconstruct the, the, the uh, my, my bet is that cortex is there in order to give us a realistic model of reality. Uh, it has to reconstruct from the senses. The auditory system, of course, forget about it, you know. All this noise is impinging on the cochlea, and the first thing it does is a huge Fourier transformer, okay? So, so uh, it has to reconstruct what's out there from this very indirect, very noisy, very ill-posed and inverse problem riddled sensory afferents. And how does it come to the brain? As chattering of action potentials in millions of fibers. So it's a huge task and of course the lower levels that we talked about, they solve these things by simply throwing away information. The, 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 the colliculus doesn't reconstruct objects, it just knows, knows where whereabouts they are when they move and when they shine brightly over there. That's all it cares about. It, it doesn't have to reconstruct anything that way. Uh, location in space is enough for it. So once it has that, it can direct the eyes there. Its job is done. The cortex wants to know what is the object like, and therefore it is confronted with all these, these uh, ambiguities and, uh, and uh, uh, inverse problems. So it has a huge job, and for me, the hierarchy, the hierarchical organization of cortex with feedback and feed forward, is to extract priors from its experience with the world to make the next experience clearer, to, to clarify the view, and so our, our, our perception of the world uh, uh, goes from, from uh, it, it's a, sort of an irreversible gain in clarity. We see the world clearer and clearer from infancy and up. Uh, and uh, and we understand more and more about it. By, by our age, the perceptual lessons are long gone. They, they, they have been handled long ago. We just go about the world as the most, most self-evident thing. So, but, so it's so easy to overlook how difficult those problems are. Size constancy, that the thing that's small on the retina can be just as big as, as this if it's far away. That has to be acquired, and it's acquired first for the proximal space, and then extends out. Size constancies, the, the, the pro progress of size constancy is simply extending the constancy farther and farther out. So some people living up evidently in, in uh, rainforest with dense foliage all around them, with never open spaces, they have a deficient 
distant fat size concept. They have good, very good clothes, but if you take them out from the from the uh, from the rainforest mm -hmm. to the plains, and they see a gazelle, they, they've never seen such a small animal. Mm -hmm. and they were surprised. You know. So yeah, but, but well, I, I was making this one scale. up. No, sure, but how does that scale? Because okay, I can imagine that this is a really good summary. If I would be just a passive observer of the world, and mm -hmm. I want indeed be, I want to have accuracy about this world. Yeah. And, but in some sense, the brain wants to act. Yes. Otherwise, yes. you're toast, right? We, we want that. So, so how does this, yeah. how does this uh, model now of neocortex map into the ability of making a decision and yeah. matching your goals yeah. and building strategies? So, so how does it generalize to this more active? Yeah. Goal-oriented part of the system. That's where Tony and others come in. We no, but you have to answer the question. Frontal, frontal basal ganglia circuitry going back to cortex. So, so first of all, the the, the desirability of an accurate view uh, of accuracy in the reconstruction, the veridical, the veridical part of it is 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 a big thing. Uh, and cortex, instead of like colliculus or other subcortical things, throwing information away and saying I don't care, I just want the, a fast solution like the that they get instant certainty at the price of permanent ignorance, okay? Mm -hmm. So, so if you really want to know what's out there, you've got to be accurate. So cortex steps back and says, I'm neutral. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not making any commitments initially. I simply make it on a probabilistic basis. I, it's, it's probable that this is a slanted line oriented 45 degrees to the right. Okay, it's a probability. So a tuning curve for orientation in visual cortex is like a, a probability density distribution. So cortex keeps doing that, and then it starts merging in the hierarchy with feed forward and feedback, the incoming information with the with the priors, and uh, at some point it has to collapse these things to an estimate, and that's when we get the the, the best estimate we can get of what's out there. But we have to act, like you say. What do we do about it? We're not just some big eye viewing the world, they contemplatively gazing at our navel. Mm -hmm. So how do we get about it? Then you have what you said, goals, motivation. We have to have we have to accomplish the things we have to accomplish. We are we are basically a metabolic engine that converts food into energy and in dividing up that for the, all the tasks that need to be accomplished, we have trade-offs. So you can spend all your time searching for a mate. If you don't eat along the way, and it, it'll allocate enough time for, for eating, you won't you 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 will starve to death before you find the mate. So trade-offs: protecting your body, uh, finding food, finding shelter, finding the right environmental circumstances, finding the right right social environment. Uh, so trade-offs constantly, dividing up the energy uh, to different tasks and evolution has taken care of a lot of that saying look there are some fundamentals that you have to to uh, accomplish uh, you have to eat you have to protect your body integrity pain system uh, you have social uh, motives you have uh, fear uh, protect yourself from danger and you have curiosity to explore yeah but i'm not sure if you're solving the problem well you're no. putting the i mean the, the solution to that part of the problem Goes back into the brainstem, yeah. areas like yeah. the hypothalamus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, is there also a sort of layered yep. architecture of motivational systems yep. that you would then trace up into cortex? Yep. And how does that link to areas like the hypothalamus? I would say 
that is just like you say, they are up there. Limbic system is the motivational layer, in a sense, the motivational compartment of cortex for, for some of the uh, motivational systems. Uh, not only that, but frontal cortex, uh, orbital frontal and so on, is shot through with motivational things like social uh, and so on. And uh, it's all going to... Now, the problem about cortex and action is that the cortex is doing this big sort of uh, uh, objective uh, reconstruction of the world, but it's doing it in parallel. And action goes serially, one action at a time, essentially. And uh, how do you convert this huge parallel display of, uh, uh, of incredible amounts of information, including uh, motivational information, in frontal and limbic, how do, you, how do you get it down to behavior? You have to have something that uh, converts the, 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 that's, that, in a sense, sequences action based on the best evidence that all those parallel areas are supplying to it. And it seems to me that that's done by piping it into the striatum and into the basal ganglia, which looks to me like a big funnel which whittles things down to a narrower and narrower compass, uh, 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 substantial, uh, no, uh, that's the final one, but, but the globus uh, pallidus externa is bigger than interna, and uh, nigra is smaller than that. So it's a big funnel, it gets narrower and narrower, because parallel things are now competing, and you're selecting the most urgent thing along the way, till finally there is a nigro, signal that says, okay, that one, release it. Uh, it has won a competition along the way, in a sense, through the basal ganglia. It's, it's like a, an obstacle race. Uh, there are all these other, at, at the, at the caudate putamen, there are all these other guys competing. You know, there's a topography there from cortex. All these other guys competing. And the farther down you get, the, the more they have knocked out their competitors, and one is going to win. That's the one that right now is going to be acted on. And... Uh, and next comes the next runner-up, who is busy. He still wants to get, get, get to control the system. And that's the next one. So now that this one is accomplished, the urgency for this one is lessening. The next guy wins, and so on. Some, uh, how that's worked out in circuitry, I can't tell you. But that's my intuitive sense of this funnel, this narrowing thing, down to the little nigra in the, in the, in the... So that means, in your mind, the whole process of actually comparing, deciding, evaluating, and so on, is, is a, a process playing out at basal ganglia level, right? Frontal basal ganglia, yeah. yeah but, but, the, but the cortex is yeah. only dealing with building little models yeah. of whatever states but you might care about. But it's also hierarchical, so, so uh, uh, superordinate goals are in frontal, mm -hmm. and so they are going to... And, and if you look at the weighting of input from cortex, to the, to the striatum, you have the, the tail of the caudate, that's where visual, you know, where sensory stuff gets in, and the farther, the, the, the farther frontal you get, the more massive is the input to the striatum. So the striatum is biased towards, uh, towards frontal input. Uh, and that's because it's high level. It's, it's big thing. Goal well, it's it cares points. about things that are talking to the motor system. Yeah, it so The bits of uh, cortex that, yeah. Directly or indirectly talk to the motor system, so yeah. early visual. Yeah. 
full text. Yeah. It doesn't speak. Yeah, it does, 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 doesn't matter much yeah. there. But there still is a little bit. It still it still keeps an eye open a little bit, but 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 massively for the motor related things. And which well, people is, talk about sort of early and late attention. So mm -hmm. in a, in a sense, the basal ganglia is late attention. Mm -hmm. It's you've already identified some candidate action mm -hmm. plans, and you're now down to choosing, mm -hmm. you know, which of a small number of things to do, mm -hmm. rather than you know, cortex calculating everything that you could possibly yeah. do and yeah. having to choose between thousands. Yeah. So, um, and so there's a lot of ways of resolving those competitions that don't require maybe the circuitry of the basal ganglia, but operate through you know, maybe attractor yeah. uh, type yeah. dynamics yeah. in yeah. cortex. Yeah, you know, I perfectly agree. It's, it makes eminent sense. And there was something that it reminded me of, which is that uh, that the uh, reinforcement learning thing makes perfect sense in that context of the whittling down of competitors from a parallel thing to a serial thing. Because now, if there is this this uh, this successive obstacle race across narrower and narrower competition, yeah. then you can go in with the reinforcement signal, the outcomes that were successful, you can say, mark that one, that's a good one, let that one slip by faster next time, that was a good one. So you can start marking uh, uh, in the basal ganglia, uh, marking synapses, uh, or, or whatever constellation of, of activity it is, uh, by, by reinforcement learning and outcomes. Outcome, because that's what action tells you. Is outcomes. Yeah, but look, I, I know you threw in basal ganglia to pacify Tony, and it seems to be working. So that's that's problematic. <laughs> because you threw in something else that you haven't accounted for. Because the starting point mm -hmm. is I'm this very meditative brain. I care about having very accurate reconstructions of the, the sources of my sensory stimulation in the outside world. And I use a form of predictive coding for that, right? I can buy that for, for let's say, everything up to the central sulcus from the occipital cortex. Yes, like this, right? exactly. Okay. exactly. So, so yeah. you have dealt with right. that part, yeah. exactly. which is not talking to basic ganglia. Yeah. Now you say, okay, now if you go more frontal, then goals come. Mm -hmm. But you haven't goals really told me how, how I use that same hardware, that cortical hardware, to get this goal, goal representation. How do, so how do the goals come in? Where do they come from? High levels of the sensory hierarchy are ideas and concepts. High levels of the motor hierarchy are plans, goals, and intentions. Mm -hmm. So, but but would it, can't we say everything that is more let's say parietal looks at the outside world. Mm -hmm. Everything more frontal looks at the inside world. Uh, uh, it looks towards action. No, but if you go plans, plans goals. No, but that's what, what are they for? They are they are tying you up. They are tying up your trade-offs tremendously. They as soon as you have set up the goal to be the greatest guitarist in the world. Mm -hmm. That's Tony. Tony is <laughs> one of the goals. Oh, I, yeah, I, I know you. Like, so uh, that wasn't why I picked it. You try to, again, right? Uh, First, right now guitar, what else? Soon it'll be Sheffield. World's greatest guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, that eliminates a lot of stuff right off. You now gonna spend eight hours a day. You know, you are narrowing your options by setting up such a goal. 
So what was that an answer to something you just said? I was saying, would it be fair to say that all the everything in front of the central sulcus cares about oh. states of the internal yeah, environment? Yeah, and, and they, you were not convinced yeah, by that. And so I, now you try to give me. Yes, yeah. I objected. And that the reason for that is that that goal you're setting up is really not so much you feel it in that in that sense it's internal, but it really has to do with your fate in the world, your trajectory through this world that you have built up objectively. How am I going to get to that place? And it, it now eliminates, once you have set up the future goal, and goals are always in the future, uh, once that's set up, you are constraining action in very, very concrete and, and, and uh, basic ways. Because, because now you can't play uh, all day, you, now you have to practice and so on. So, it, so, even the, so though they are internal in the sense that, they are, that you, you feel an impulse to do something or, or a desire to, to be that great artist or an ambition, uh, that's the internal part. And of course that's related to what I said about motivational systems being enmeshed with the frontal. That's why Jung calls it frontal limbic. Frontal mm -hmm. limbic is a very nice uh, concept. So, so naturally there is this, and there is the insulin for proprioceptive, uh, for for interoceptive things. Yeah. So, uh, so naturally, but but ultimately, I would say goals and planning is 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 that that the the big topic, the overriding topic, is action. Is how how to how okay. To so so now we have an idea at least of the core hierarchy, and. Uh, now, in some sense, we have a, a more, let's say, at a microscopic level, we have to now start to think about how all this information is represented and passed along between all these circuits, right? And um, some time ago, you, you wrote a fantastic review on, on gamma responses in, in the brain, which I would think you wouldn't also see as, as a possible substrate for this kind of information exchange. <laughs> oh, you! Ah, you're on to me now. I'm on to you. So, what's uh, that? That easy. Okay, but the, but the point is, <laughs> yeah. you do have to because now we we talked about in abstracto about these cortical hierarchies, mm -hmm. but now signals have to pass between mm -hmm. all these different stages. So, how should I think about that? How does that happen? Well, my my answer to that is, what passes is signal energy, not messages. And how does it pass? It always passes through fiber bundles that are coherently organized, in essentially, most of the time, in point-to-point -to -point topographies. They may, may be broken up by interleaved columns, but across the columns, you're still maintaining the, 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 uh, the topography. Uh, uh, from map to map, there are these transformations from map to map, and, and uh, there are examples of, of, uh, of, of actually twisted fiber bundles, like from Cortex apparently to down to the uh, the uh, the precerebellar nuclei in the in the ponds. Mm -hmm. There's this weird topology, and then it pipes up to the cerebellum. But anyway, um, so so my take on the interaction, how they work together, would be that each system is doing uh, doing its specialty all the time, and uh, but the signal exchange was the question. Yeah, how do they exchange signals? By their projections, when the when yeah, but what is the signal? Where's 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 the message? Ah, is it the message? The, the firing rate. There isn't any message. Well, oh, uh, aha! He's setting traps for me. Uh, rate coding, yes. <laughs> really? Yes. And that's also, a more, that's a more fundamental question here because you said at lunch you want the computational issues emphasized. 
it's energy, not messages. Mm -hmm. But you've also talked uh, very much in sort of representational terms mm -hmm. about what's happening in cortex. Yes. And these are two things which are quite hard to square because mm -hmm. if you want to go down a sort of really hardcore dynamicist route, you wouldn't mention the word representation in your language either. Mm -hmm. You would say the brain is just in tune with its body and the environment in such a way that you know, it bounces between appropriate protractors mm -hmm. so that the animal does the right thing at the right time. Mm -hmm. But all of your language is actually yeah. about modularity, yeah. decomposition. Yeah. And it all sounds like the kind of thing mm -hmm. that a computationalist would, would yeah. love. Yeah, and, and, and I, I don't, I don't, I am definitely not in the dynamicist camp and the, and the dynamic systems camp. I, I, but in terms of me, my representational talk is because what I see those cortical areas as are two-dimensional maps, and those maps are topographically organized, neighbor, neighborhood relations are preserved uh, in projections from area to area, they form a hierarchy, and, uh, and there is a pattern on each map. Uh, a certain, uh, so you've seen the, the famous to tell the picture of when they showed when they showed uh, a macaque a bullseye with two deoxyglucose and they developed the uh, mm -hmm. films and they showed the, the beautiful transformed image and visual cortex. Uh, a lot of people misunderstood Yuval and Weasel when they said that the stimulus is taken apart into orientation, color and so on. They said that locally and people started thinking globally but, but, but they also said equally emphatically that as you move the electrode across V1 uh, you are crossing the columns and, and, and over, over distance you are maintaining the retinal topography. So there is an image in V1, there is a, there is a, a physical pattern of different, uh, different uh, activation states. And I, and I treat this, the, the neurons as pixels in a picture, essentially. That's my metaphor, right. a, a very abstract metaphor. Uh, they are pixels in a, uh, in a picture on a screen. And, and what happens across the hierarchy is it gets transformed, the screens get smaller and smaller, they get more and more abstract, and they are, they are interacting. Look, this this sounds a little bit like what people have described as morphological computation, but morphological yeah. computation in the context of the brain, yes. you're taking advantage of the geometry. Yes. Uh, and the and physical hardware of the brain yes. and that, to do computation. No, but, but, but aren't you describing a complete disaster now? I mean, <laughs> well, maybe. we were doing so well. Yes. It's, it sounded so convincing. <laughs> this, and we could agree. What you're saying with morphological computation fits very well with how I think, and I, I call it analog computation. Right. But that will not pacify me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because now, now suddenly we completely switched perspectives mm -hmm. and we, we talk about maps 2d maps mm -hmm. that that are wired mm -hmm. uh, conserving some sort of topography between them mm -hmm. on the other hand we talk also about hierarchical feed forward top-down relations yeah. yeah so that means I have now forward and backward yes topographically conserving mm -hmm. projections mm -hmm. between all these maps so you're gonna run out of wires very quickly not at all uh, the wires are fixed what that the, doesn't solve my problem. The interaction between feed forward and feedback simply changes the synaptic weights and fills those areas well, in the hierarchy. Never scale, Bjorn. What's how, that? How can it scale? Because here you have this sort of Buddha brain that just contemplates the world mm -hmm. and it tries to estimate the sources of its sensory stimulation. Mm -hmm. 
the world is all practically infinitely variable. Mm -hmm. And in your case, I have to capture all that content by really labeling individual connections with a certain meaning. Right? No. There are no labels. There's no way to escape from that. There are no labels. You have labeled lines. You must. Why? Because you you have top topography preserving maps. So if you want to encode any combination of features, it is a combination of features expressed by activities and locations in such a map. Location right? is and map. locations in the map must be conserved as you move them through such a hierarchy. So if I now want to have, a, let's say, a location invariant representation of your hat, mm -hmm. and I want to also have a rotation invariant representation of your hat, there are a lot of wires going between these that's, maps. That's way up in the hippocampus, or way up next to the hippocampus, in, in the, in the, in the perihippocampal, and that's where those recognition things are. That's your 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 knowledge of a rotation and an abstract hat is not is not this hat. This hat is located in a specific place on your maps, all the way up to through the infrotemporal cortex. They still maintain topography all the way down through infrotemporal cortexes. When you get up to HT and uh, parahippocampal and entorhinal, that's when you start breaking down topography. And, and with, once you are in hippocampus, you are in the sparse sparse map, which is you know people. A lot of people don't understand that that the place cells that are responding to a single location in a rat's cage are spread all over the hippocampus through the cross section, and a, a scattering. It looks like pepper, you know, like scattered, mm -hmm. you know. And the guys next to them are is another subset of hippocampal cells. So there is no spatial map in the colliculus or the visual one sense in the hippocampus. That's an abstract map that's for storing the maximum amount of information in, in a, a, light, a finite number of cells. But the, the, I'm not running out of pixels or wires because the screens, the, 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 the maps, the two-dimensional maps, uh, just metaphorically think of them like a TV screen. You're not running out of TV pixels because you're showing a movie on them. They are scintillating and changing all the time. And what they are displaying is, is every one of the areas has a different content depending on where it is in the hierarchy. And that has to do with the priors. And and for instance, okay, example. Anatomically, it's a fact that inter-aerial synapses landing into a volume of cortex, but the process coming from another part of cortex, mm -hmm. or the long-range interactions, is, is less than 3-2%. It's minimal. Very, very it's very, very yeah. I know. But in your proposal, in your proposal now, mm -hmm. I think you would need way more than this 2% to wire your system together to be able to be this meditating Buddha who can say, ah, oh, it's a box here. I don't quite see why. Okay. We, we maybe uh, uh, Kawato did a very nice. Well, that that was that was. Really but, but, but but we this is this is a testable prediction, right? So we should yeah make a prediction. What kind of wiring ratios you would get local global? Yeah. And where do they match what you find the real thing? I I like I, I mean when I read Young back then uh, his his 
his his numbers for density of, of interconnection. But but remember, those two three percent, they are not scattered randomly. They are interpart. They are in register. They're always in register, right. even though they are so, few. Okay, so we will finish this over dinner. I think that, that because um, we need maybe some some uh, some wine to go along with this, but because yeah. we're speculating, <laughs> and we know we don't we don't like that. But uh, so Björn. With your long career in many fields, which is amazing, right? You've been in many fields, you have impact in many fields, from from music to to neuroscience to humans' understanding of, of mushrooms. You've been all over the place, right? Which is really astonishing. Vedic exegesis, I have solved mm. puzzles that that Vedic translators have not managed to solve in the Rig Veda, mm -hmm. and I published a paper in Mongolian studies mm -hmm. uh, where I solved four puzzles in Vedic translation that nobody had solved. And the reason was I had studied the steppe nomads, uh, religious ideas, mm -hmm. and there's, they're, 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 the steppe has a common culture. Their nomads are going back and forth. The Rig Veda, where steppe people came down into India, and they carried some of their lore from the steppe with them. And you, knowing what they thought about the stars and so on, I could solve the problem. So, Rig Veda exegesis without <laughs> knowing Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> but now you do know Sanskrit. No, I don't. No, okay. No, no, never learned it. No. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> but I heard you sing the girl from Ipanema once in Sanskrit. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that was, I have memorized it. Ah, okay. Good. Memorized it, yeah. Um, so, it was okay. summertime. But, summertime. Oh, it was summertime, sorry. Yeah. My, my mistake. <laughs> but, okay, look, this broad experience that you bring to the table here. Mm -hmm. um, what is Bjorn's law? that we should follow in order to, to understand how the brain works? First of all, forget about language. That's the last thing you want to look at. Once you've solved all the rest of it, you can add language probably easily. So forget about language and messages and so on are language-based metaphors. Uh, look at analog computers how you would solve these things analog-wise, which would be morphological computation in a sense. And uh, third one, I think that's enough. Okay. So then, um, Tony will come visit you soon in Christianstadt, um, about three years from now, to, to, to check whether you actually have falsified or, or verified your key hypothesis on how the brain works. So what hypothesis would you like to see really tested in a three-year time frame? That's a good question. That's a nice question. Finally, we have a question he likes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked all of them. Till you got tried to trick me on, on the uh, gamma and the, and the, and the uh, gamma, what was the other one? Uh, yeah, you tried to trick me on gamma and one other one. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you weren't trying to trick me, you just wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Now, let's see. Uh, prediction. Prediction. Prediction for the future. And it's also one that Tony can appreciate, because he's going to come to Christian stuff to check what okay. actually happened. Okay. Yeah. In winter, because he should, it should be too pleasant. I'm trying to get out of this field, not into it. So you can make a prediction and walk away, right? Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure. Just not be home when Tony rings the doorbell. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, my dream, my dream experiment, my dream 
research line from three years from now uh, with an answer what would that be hell I, I, I can't think <laughs> well I think given our discussion an obvious one would be that you're going to prove that you're oh, I know. topographically I know. Okay. conserving architectures okay, I can know. scale. I, I know now. Okay. I know. okay. <laughs> I, I Without like... being, I mean, too supportive. No, no, I, no I, I know now. It's, okay. it's not that. I, I, I lightly touched upon the fact that cortex works probabilistically, yeah. but you need an estimate. Okay. And there is work that shows that as long as cortex works on the probabilistic basis, its transmission is fast. Its, its operations are fast. As soon as you want to try to constrain cortex to precipitate an estimate, things not crash, but slow down. And uh, I forget now the name of uh, the people who, who, who suggested that. Uh, so probabilistically, cortex is fast. And Mumford, back in the 90s, had a couple of papers on, on corticothalamic relations. And in the abstract, the one when he says estimates are made in the thalamus. And I am on that line. Uh, I think that cortex is working on a probabilistic basis. And when it is time to make an estimate for actual action things, these are, these, those are made in subcortical locations. And like basal ganglia for action, colliculus for prioritization and, uh, uh, and orienting. And I think there is a... I think the thing I would like to be tested is, is there a global best estimate of the whole, where, where the whole probabilistic panoply of cortical areas, where, where all that information is collapsed to one single estimate of, of my, my best now in the moment estimate of what, what's happening around me. But this sounds like your, your brain, your cortex, which already had a problem with representing all these topographic maps now has to support a, a full panoply of Bayesian probabilistic estimates of, of different interpretations of the mm -hmm. world and maintain those at the same time. Yeah, I, so, I, I mean, do you really want to say that that's what the brain is doing? I, 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 I want to test it whether that happens in the Poolian arc. That it collapses into There is the massive arc. convergence of multiple higher order cortical areas uh, most of them, the V1 projects to the pulvinar, but, but the, the, the dorsal pulvinar, which is what I'm looking at, uh, has this massive convergence from, from a lot of higher areas, both frontal and parietal and temporal. Okay, So there is this convergent place, and it has a, it's, it's invested with a special inhibitory interneuron that exists no other place in the thalamus, and they are long-range inhibition in the dorsal, uh, discovered by Kathy Rockland, and that place, to me, looks like a place that might be ideally placed to make a global best estimate in the moment of what all the cortical, uh, cortical uh, information amounts mm -hmm. to in terms of one global estimate. And you need sort of a global estimate because some right. of the things are not disambiguated until you have mm -hmm. put them all together. McGurk effect. You know, you look at somebody's mouth and they say one syllable and another one comes into your earphones mm -hmm. and, and so on. Actually, it's all the time with Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but that's also then your conscious scene. The conscious that's scene so, is That's that. the conscious scene. Mm -hmm. So, so if, if that could be tested in three years, I would be very happy. 
But your prediction will be that it will be true. Uh, my be prediction is yes, yeah. there will be a global best estimate in the dorsal pulvin arm. That's my prediction. Fantastic. A, a clearer prediction you can't get. Very good. John Merker, <laughs> thank you very much for this conversation. <laughs> Wonderful. I enjoyed it. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.